Hey, Nick, um, I got a question for you. Yes. <laughs> um, so this is one of my favorite old questions that you guys asked, oh, more than a year ago, probably, but it's been a theme of the, the, uh, the show, and uh, I'd like to ask it again while I'm here and while we have a special guest. If you were stuck on a desert island, or better yet, uh, if you could just have one camera that you have always, what what would that camera be, and what what types of features are the uh, features you like the best, the the ones that that would be on your dream camera? So if I could only have one, and and I'm on that classic desert island that does have a film processing lab and all that stuff. It would be, it would be a 120 roll film camera with at least six by seven uh, roll film holder and you know some kind of a nice big, uh, not big in size but a good quality large format style lens on it. Everything would be manual. Everything would be very simple. There'd be two or three ways to focus: scale focus, ground glass, and uh, probably a rangefinder. So. Really, pretty much the kind of cameras that I build would be what I'd want. So what is it about, you know, both having ground glass and like scale focusing? Is that what you said? Ground glass yeah. and scale? So, so yeah. Scale focusing, so why? Right. So scale focusing is my preferred way of focusing because it means that I can get it right and then not think about it at all. Even even focusing a single lens reflex gets in my way when I'm when I'm trying to take pictures because I'm thinking about something not very important, but I don't much care for autofocus uh, because it doesn't focus on whatever I want to focus on. It, it chooses, its right. own, you know, some, some eyeball right. or some damn thing that, that I don't care about. Uh, but if you're going to stop, if you're going to open the lens up, it gets to the point where scale focus is impractical. And then sure. you need the ground glass in order to, to get an accurate, uh, an accurate, fo- you know, focus in that situation. When I'm shooting fast, I don't want narrow depth of field. So that's just something I reserve for maybe close up work or, you know, something where I have time to get it just right. And uh, so, so that, sure. that's why I want both options. So, uh, you know, when I think about this, I think um, uh, about how much it's changed since I, since we first used that as a question, as an open question, uh, probably about a year ago. Um, and you know, like, like today, I think it might be a four by five camera for me. Um, and, uh, my four by five has uh, a little reflex back. So, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a mirror, a mirror, uh, back viewer so that, you know, I'm, I'm looking through ground glass. Um, you know, I don't scale focus it generally at this point, cause I've been, I've switched lenses and I, and I haven't gone through the scale, although it did, it is set up for scale focusing um, if I wanted to do that. Um, you know, so I might do that. I might, you know, I'm playing around with the the paper positive um, uh, technology, paper, you know, a direct positive mm-hmm. um, uh, bath, uh, whatever, development process. Um but, you know, really what that says to me more than anything else, what it says to me is the idea that if I end up on a desert island with just one camera, it better 
damn well be a short trip. You know, uh, I don't think that I, you know, I, I don't, I, if I had one camera, I'd probably be really sick of it in a year and I probably will have disassembled it and reassembled something else in so so may i may i make a suggestion then if you are ever put in this dismal position then you should you remember to ask the genie for a large boat shaped camera oh yeah there (laughs) we go you're right exactly um or or the other thing is just give me a bag of parts and let me interchange them um as best i can and you know i'd have to have a you know a moderately moderately wide four by five lens so that if I switch to medium format, it would be just, you know, like maybe a normal, you know, like a 90 or something. Sure. Um, I'm at. So, so Ethan, what do you, what do you think? What would you be your plan? Like a M4 and a Sumalux 35.14. Okay. <laughs> and, and done. Okay. It's a, so there's it's a no. desert Island. You can't do street photography because there's no other people there. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah. I, I should have rephrased the question to like one one camera. Uh, yeah. Okay, so you're stuck on Ibiza, okay, and there are a bunch of people dancing, and so well, let's a... let's um let, let's expand it a little bit. Lucas, uh, what what do you think? What would uh, if you had one camera that you could use for a very long time on Ibiza, uh, what would you do? What would you take? Well, uh, using a camera for the rest of my life, I would say reliability would be top on the list and something that's well-rounded. Uh, I would choose either a Mamiya 7 or a Leica M6 with a 35 on it. Now, out of the two, I think I would probably have to go for the Leica. I think that's the most reliable camera that... Uh, offers me the most options in most situations. Uh-huh. And you, you like the light meter availability? Um, is that the reason why you choose the M6 over the M4 or M3 or M2? or? Yeah, the, just to, just so that I have it, more or less, you know, because you never know what you're going to be doing. Uh-huh. And having oh, the right. option for a light meter is, is really great. Now, granted, uh, when I shoot, I almost never use the light meter, but... If if I'm preparing for the worst, I might as well have it, right? Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Batteries. Stack of batteries. Oh yeah. yeah well, I'm assuming that every every twentieth roll of film, I'll get a battery, yeah. right? <laughs> I think. Yeah. There we go. I'm thinking that this island must have like a uh, one of those Amazon drop stations. You know where you can you know, where they can just magically put stuff in there and well it just has the world's strangest it has the world's strangest mini mart it just sells film and batteries nothing else right right <laughs> absolutely absolutely so so yeah so um, let's uh, start the homemade camera podcast. Okay, so we have a very special guest today. Um, You know him from Instagram as Cropped Camera um, or his excellent uh, YouTube series on uh, machining and casting and uh, 
yeah, making some amazing cameras. Uh, it's Lucas Landers, and I'm going to let Lucas uh, tell you a little bit about himself if you guys don't know uh, everything already. Welcome, okay. Lucas. Well, well, thank you for that introduction. Uh, my name's Lucas Landers. I'm a Brooklyn-based camera maker, and I tend to specialize in making uh, smaller metal cameras, as uh some of you may know if you follow me on Instagram. Uh, I've been working for about, I would say about five years, maybe. Actually, let me rephrase that. I think I've been working eight years nearly building cameras. I've been into photography for maybe 10 years, and I have some very specific goals with camera making that I'm sure we'll, we'll get into uh, as the podcast, podcast progresses. But uh, right now, I'm working mostly in a, a small machine shop that I built myself in my basement. Well, when I say my basement, I actually mean uh, right next to my bedroom. Uh, I live in a basement. <laughs> um, you are in Brooklyn after all, right? Yeah, yeah. So having a machine shop in Brooklyn is the most challenging thing ever. I had to make a lot of sacrifices in order to get one. I used to live above ground. In a <laughs> yeah. It was. It was. I, I think about those days. I'm like, man, I used to have a, a big window and a, a tall ceilings and uh, yeah, light. Those one, those one window apartments are pricey though, and you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And now, now I do have a window, but it's um, 18 inches tall and <laughs> about 30 inches wide. So you could probably picture how how much light that lets in. It's also below grade, so I don't get sunrises. And uh, my my what it, what this apartment does afford me though is a lot of space. I have the entire basement, and and half of it's my bedroom, which is mostly storage for various camera and tool related stuff. And the rest of it's a small machine shop with you know I got CNC machines, I got milling machines, lathe, uh, a bunch of woodworking equipment, almost everything I could want. That's great. I I started out my metalworking career in in Manhattan also, and I moved immediately to Philadelphia where I could afford a big space. Yeah, <laughs> so, Phil, I keep on yeah. thinking about man, Philadelphia is sounding nicer and nicer because well, you you could have windows. Yeah, and I was uh I can have space too. Like mm -hmm. uh, I know lots of people who move there and immediately quadruple their workspaces. And there's also uh, shared workspaces there. There's not really any good shared workspaces here in Brooklyn anymore. Right. And uh, if there are, you get access to very little tools for a lot of money. Yep. And I'm just not willing to pay 600 bucks a month to have access to a table saw. I, I don't suppose right. this is the time to tell you about my place in Philly that was 5,000 square feet for $300 a month. <laughs> no, yeah, I'll, I'll forget about it. For, I'll forget that you said yeah, that. Yeah, but... Yeah, but that was during the Kennedy administration, wasn't it? No, no, but it, it was Reagan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so Lucas, how did you, tell us how you how you got here? How did you how did you get into photography? How did you get into uh, camera building that type of thing? Well, if we if we go all the way back to how did I get into photography, it's kind of an interesting story. So, I I was living in. Oklahoma. I moved to Oklahoma when I was like eight, and I hated it a lot. 
as as uh, if anyone who's been to Oklahoma would know, it's very boring. There's nothing fun to do. Sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was dull and boring, and I I was doing quite well in school though, and I was on course to be an engineer, and I got accepted to all the great engineering schools. Uh, but there, it turns out that Oklahoma being as boring as it is, does have a lot of engineering, good engineering schools. So if I was going to do engineering, it was going to be in Oklahoma. But I told myself, like, why don't, why don't I just see what else is out there? So I, I made a pact with myself that I could apply to one art school in New York. Mm-hmm. If I got in, I had to go. <laughs> so, okay. so I put together a photography portfolio because, of course photography is the easiest form of art (laughs) or so people think when they don't know anything about photography so i put together the world's worst um portfolio of photography and sent it in and i guess that they don't get a lot of applications from oklahoma and maybe there's some sort of quota because i got accepted (laughs) somehow to pratt Mm -hmm. in uh brooklyn Mm -hmm. and I had made that pact with myself, so I had to go. And that's how I got into photography. So wow. okay. I, I think that's a perfectly good reason. Yeah. <laughs> my my dad ended up as a writer because he didn't want to do engineering. So see, that's the way it goes. Yeah, it's like it's like what what what's a better option? You know, which which is which is the better route? And I mean I think about that a lot and it the it's turned out quite well for me. I'm quite happy with where I'm at now. And I worked very hard when I was in art school, and I learned a lot. And I would say that now I'm definitely a better photographer. <laughs> so that was that was eight years ago, I guess, nine years ago, 2010. Mm-hmm. That's when I first came to Brooklyn, and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but Pratt's a good school, and quickly got me past the stereotypical freshman art projects i got past that really quickly and started working on more and more interesting things growing uh learning with new cameras and new processes and it was only a matter of time before or in my mind that i started building cameras and the reason i say that is because growing up so i grew up in louisiana before i moved to oklahoma and we didn't we didn't really have a lot my 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 dad made a whopping $4 and 50 cents an hour and raised a family mm-hmm. of four on that. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that didn't stretch very far. So the things we wanted or in many cases, the things we needed, we couldn't buy, but rather either create ourselves buy something that's broken and then fix it or simply do without. So lots of crafting when I was a kid, and that really turned into a passion later in life when I got to the point where I no longer had to make things. I still found myself enjoying the process of doing it. So I could mm-hmm. go out and buy, you know, you name it, but I rather enjoyed making it myself. And when it came, when I started getting really into photography, the moment I decided to shoot large format, I was like, well, shoot. I can make my own large format. <laughs> so right, yeah, and I I had never even seen a large format in person, but I read a bunch of books about them, and I've seen pictures of them on the internet. And I put together a little AutoCAD drawing of one of a friend of mine, and made it out of laser cut plywood, and hardware from Home Depot, and it was 
it's the ugliest camera ever made. It's probably the ugliest camera ever made in all of history. I have it on my shelf. I'm looking at it right now. It's embarrassing, but it worked really, really well. And that one really kicked it off. I yeah, have that's... an 8x10 sitting in my shop that I just moved that I built in college for much the mm-hmm. same reasons. That is very ugly, but near and dear to my heart because it took excellent pictures. Yeah, that's <laughs> the that's... first one where I was like, yep, going to keep doing this. Kind of get hooked. And um, yeah, it was like it was a it was an experience. It was a process. It took me forever. And um, the bellows are made of gaffer's tape. And, oh <laughs> yeah so you can imagine how rigid they are like it has tilts and swings and shifts but none of that did stuff you put ribs actually in the works. bellows sorry did you rib the bellows or just all gaffers tape so i did something where i it's it's kind of ribbed i would say it's like pseudo ribbed where there's less gaffer tape where the folds are <laughs> I and, made mine. <laughs> yeah, that's, out that sounds right. From yeah. Pizza boxes and uh, got some pleather from the East Village. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. But yeah, I, 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 pizza boxes were, were my big technological breakthrough at the time. Good <laughs> fragrance too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the pizza camera. Yeah, the 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 um, it took me like a few. I want to say two years before I made my next one because I was just so excited to use that camera so often. I shot hundreds of of images with that camera. Not only did I use it, but a lot of my friends used it as well because it was much lighter than the Toyo cameras that the school provided. Um, yeah. I, was I it also of, handheld? Sorry? Was it also handheld? No, no, it's not, it's not handheld. But what I did is I could... I would pop the lens board, pop the back off, and um, pop the uh, the bellows. No, sorry, I left the bellows on. And I'll take the the rail out, and I could actually loop the whole body through my um, tripod strap. So oh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking at this right now. Uh, so you just can great. sling it over your shoulder and go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I just needed a bag for the negative holders and the lens and the spring back and so for like in a very small package i could walk around with a four by five camera and take it pretty much uh, we went you know through tons of abandoned buildings in upstate new york uh hiking with it uh, landscapes uh, we did some street photography all over brooklyn and manhattan and i i mean i personally probably ran 500 negatives through it and some of my friends have run probably another 150 through it. So, it, yeah, I put it to work. Uh, got some yeah. mileage out of it. <laughs> That's one of the great things about New York is it's really still a place for pedestrians. Yeah. And it, it's a place where you want that portable portable mm-hmm. gear. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, you can hop in the subway and be anywhere within an hour mm-hmm. yeah. and take your camera with you, take your, take your 4x5 with you as long as you got the right setup. So okay, so you you have this uh, this four by five built from uh, plywood, yeah, laser cut plywood. So that says that you had access to like a you know a laser cutter. Uh, was that there at the school? Was this while you were still in school, or was this something that you did afterward uh, in like a maker shop or maker space or something like that? 
so I had a friend who was in the architecture department, and they had a laser cutter. He's the same ah, okay. one who helped me with the AutoCAD files because I didn't really know AutoCAD back then. I was just making right. sketches, and then like he would help me bring them into AutoCAD. So he did a lot of the footwork. It's my friend Gary, and okay, he he did a lot of he did a lot of the footwork. Now I will say that I did uh, make the mistake of buying my wood in Manhattan and having to drag it all the way back to Brooklyn on the subway. That's a terrible choice. <laughs> was it a full four by eight sheet? It was a four by eight sheet cut into strips, and I took it okay. on the subway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I got some looks and I got some glares, and I had to get off. I accidentally got on the express train, and I was too embarrassed to transfer, so I had to walk like like two stops carrying freaking forty pounds of wood with me. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So that was an experience. The whole the whole camera was like okay. a labor. <laughs> yeah. Okay, folks, this is how you suffer for your art. Forget yes. doing all the drugs and stuff like that. Suffer for your art. I mean, living in a machine shop is something <laughs> near and dear to my heart. Uh, I know this type of suffering. Yeah, <laughs> my, my wife and I had a, a about a six-month period where we were welding in our kitchen. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just put, like, a griddle over the metal afterwards to cook your breakfast? Or? No, we had it, it was a real kitchen, it, it, but we put a welder in it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's funny. Man. My dad the, got... Hmm? Sorry. My my dad got kicked out of his first apartment for welding in the bathroom. Uh, now also has a small Brooklyn basement machine shop uh, uh-huh. that is miserable right. with tools uh, and has no space to actually do work. <laughs> okay, so oh, go ahead. Uh, so so what followed the um, the four by five view camera and and at that point. You know, so if this is your first built camera mm-hmm. and you and and it sounds like it was wonderfully successful. Was it just like you just started thinking, OK, I can build this and yes, I can build that. And, or or was there a, a logical connection with the next camera? Uh, so, I mean, it was I was during school, so I was extremely busy and mm-hmm. I was doing 10 different kinds of photography at any given moment. So. Between all my classes and studies, I was I was torn between a lot of different facets, so I didn't have a ton of time to really focus on camera making because it was such a time and like such a time sink. So it wasn't till senior year that I was able to start thinking about my second camera, and I did it because I was in my first machining class. I was taking a class on the lathe, on the metal lathe, and that really freed freed me up to explore what it means to build something that actually looks good and is a camera um and because i was i was always kind of embarrassed by the looks of my first camera so i was like okay this time i want to make a camera that's better technically but also much prettier and better to look at i wanted to explore materials and um basically polish uh, how to make a camera look good and during that time, I mean, during this time, I was exper- still experimenting with a lot of different kinds of photography, most of them very rigid and not not ultra liberating. Like, I wasn't into street photography at the time. I was into, like, tripod, put on a tripod kind of photography. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to experiment with the exact opposite of that. So I, was, so I made the rule that the next camera 
has to be handheld and portable. And I was shooting a lot of Instac at the time, and I was like, okay, I want something that's going to be instant as well. So those were my um, requirements. Portable and instant. Quick and was another one. I needed to be quick mm-hmm. to shoot. So I made what is my probably to this day one of my favorite cameras, my instant press camera. And that one, you know, it's a big it's a big wooden camera still, but it's uh, light enough that it can be carried and small enough to stick in a backpack. And I use it a lot, um, like um, zone focus. I'll set it up with a big flash at six feet and set the focus to six feet and just go around shooting all day at six feet and that camera hey i want to stop you for one second and point out that you can follow along at home and um, you can see all these cameras and the pictures that lucas is talking about on his website which is lucaslanders.com yes yes Yes. okay i'm following along it's it's great to actually see what these Mm -hmm. things are yeah and that camera, I think, takes the most beautiful photographs out of all of my cameras, honestly. That um, I was shooting Instac film, and the I was doing an, an extraction process. So I'll take the positive, and I'd usually give the positive away to whoever I was shooting at the time, um, or to people on the street as they talk to me about the camera and whatnot. Um, and the negatives, which is just this black piece that peels off the back, you can tape to a piece of acrylic, and bleach the backside of, and it turns into a negative. And it's very dangerous because it, if you don't do it right, it'll dissolve the image or dissolve part of the image. And um, so that, but what it does is it creates a, 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 it's hard to describe the unique quality of these images because they're very grainy, but they also have that large format look to them. They're so you have, yeah, they're they yeah, they have they have such a unique quality. The grain is, and I have I have huge prints made from these negatives. I have prints, um, I printed some of them up to 40 inches on the longest side, and they they have a unique sharpness to them, where it's they're how to say, like there's no sharp line in that photograph, but it's. It's all the information still there, if that makes it, sense. They're very, they have a lot of clarity, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're grainy, yet there's that clarity to them. And also, you got this uh, really interesting dynamic range going on because it's like what you see is what you get. There's not a lot of push pull with the negative, um, so the exposure has to be more or less spot on in order for mm-hmm. me to get anything out of it. And that was the first time that I created, like what I believe to be at the time, truly unique images. Like I was shooting in a world where I had never seen anything like these images I was producing and I was just blown away and I loved it. And I went broke (laughs) buying film for that camera. I, I shot, I would go out and I would shoot 10 packs. I would, I would work. I was still in school. I was working 20 hours a week and I'd save up all of my money to buy 10 packs of film and go out on one day and shoot every single one of them. And I'll do that. Every week, almost. Is, and, was, that, was that the four by five crack and peel film? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, the Fuji FP100. Right. So it's not. It's slightly okay. smaller than four by five. Right, right. But it's pretty much a large format, and it's a peel. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and it it actually I had planned to shoot with the black and white film when I built this camera, but they literally, I kid you not, the week I finished this camera, they announced that they were no longer producing the black and white film. Yeah. 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 So and I had because I had planned on using that 3000 ISO, so uh, I had to I had to alter because I went from 3000 ISO to 100 ISO, so I had to alter my plans a bit. But that that camera. Um, was one of my favorites. Was, I mean, I would say my favorite. And I shot with it constantly. And I still have it. And it, But it just one thing, I can't get the film for it anymore without spending four times what I used to pay. And I can't really justify that. And not only that, but the original lens I was on it was destroyed when I was hit by a car while <laughs> biking with the, the camera. And I was... I, Ever since then, the camera hasn't quite functioned as it did, and so I kind of, I kind of accepted the fact that I'm gonna have to put this camera on a shelf and admire it from afar for now on. Sure. Yeah, but you could make a four by five version of that um, really easily. Yeah, I could, but I think it like I. The heck, you don't need instant. It loses come on, the magic. Come on. <laughs> I, the instant was the part that was so magical to me. That that okay, film so, is beautiful. Yeah. So you may know that we are running a a challenge about a self developing camera. Uh huh. Um. So it's semi instant. So this might be a great opportunity to resurrect this camera with uh with the idea of that that self developing uh some some sort of self developing back or some sort uh-huh. of self developing element on that so that may be that may be a call um a call for this camera by the way i do want to point out one thing about this camera is that it still does have a healthy dose of gaffer's tape and uh, <laughs> you're you're noticing the uh racing stripes down the front right oh the racing oh i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I put those there temporarily and i was like hey i can uh-huh. like that <laughs> I was like, I just need to hold the lens on, so I just put two black stripes down the front of it of gaffer's tape, and then, and then I stood back and I was like, that doesn't look bad. That doesn't look bad at all. I, I had planned on putting some brass, you know, kind of your stereotypical brass lens board hardware Spires. on there, and I don't know. I stood back and I was like, that's nice. I'm gonna keep that. <laughs> yeah. Yep, you're right. It doesn't it doesn't really do anything because um the lens board literally never gets changed. I um have no other lenses for it. Never never once changed the lens board. I don't even think I've ever pulled the lens board off. But uh <laughs> yeah. That was a happy accident. <laughs> okay, so um let's see. So so we have you're moving now into instant for this. Obviously, Fuji's, you know, economic decision to cut us off from mm. from uh, the FP um, uh, film. One hundred. Uh, well, and but it's also, you know, it's all the other, all films, yeah. you know, the three thousand B and all that that other stuff. But um, it's so so you have that instant. Um, so where did you move next? What was the what was next down the the pike for for this? Well, so uh, during my senior year, I um, it was a very turbulent year. Uh, senior year and maybe the first two years after college it was very turbulent. Um, I was experimenting with a lot of different stuff, and 
what you guys may not know is the handmade camera stuff, especially from that period of my life, makes up a very, very small portion of my portfolio. And I was so I was doing uh, my main my main project, my thesis project that I was doing for school was a project I was doing um, that uh, involved my parents and kind of a process of me reconnecting with my parents through photography. And what I did is I shipped them a camera and directed them to, to take photographs for me. And through that, we were able to develop a language, a back and forth, and kind of open up communications that were never there. And that project more or less consumed me for, for years. And um, that that was what I was doing most of this period when I was with the instant camera. And it wasn't till a while after I graduated, <coughs> sorry, a little while after I graduated that I started looking at the handmade cameras again. I had I had basically taken a pretty long break. I hadn't made a camera in, like I said, probably two years. Mm-hmm. And um, I still had, like, at that time, I had a, a bear workshop going in my bedroom. <laughs> and I hadn't really, like, thought a lot about what I wanted to do. And so I had kind of just, like, played around with different like pen holes and and stuff like that i made like a camera out of a book made a, i made the iphone 6 camera which i thought was funny where i took an iphone box mm-hmm. and put a camera lens on it and um a whole bunch of like a whole plethora i made one that uh, was pretty exciting it was called the two-way pinhole camera or or the meta pinhole camera where mm-hmm. it was two pieces of film and the the film was the lens for the other piece of film. So it was two lenses, two pieces of film, but I'd poke a hole in the film, and that film would then become the lens for the other piece of film, if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So you get these images where it's two, it's 180 degrees of each other, and you, you, you get a big white spot in the middle where in a hole where the, lint, where the light is coming through for the other piece of film. Um, so I, d- I was experimenting a lot, but I wasn't getting a ton of satisfaction out of it. I was doing all these things, but it's like, okay, yeah, this was fun. But I was never able to recapture the magic that I did with my um, Polaroid camera, my instant press camera. And at that time, I was also working on a lot of other projects that were were going quite well, just in the realm of photography in general. Um, and I was trying to get, you know, maybe some gallery shows or something going. And so, but what I did was I set nice and long and i thought about what it is that i want to accomplish and i came to the conclusion that um what's the best camera in the world and i or i asked myself what's the best camera in the world and my answer is the leica m6 and i then said well why don't i just try and make a better leica m6 so that's been my goal for the past few years is okay yeah that now, that's that's quite a challenge i would say yeah, they're it's, they're they're it, it's a steep up road hill uphill yes. road Some my challenge road. lucas is the mamiya 7 oh good good call because the mamiya yeah. 7 i think i stated in the beginning was like <laughs> like those are my two choices I know. the mamiya I know. 7 <laughs> and the and the leica m6 and the, so the Leica, Leica M6, and I mean, I could use this all, pretty much all the same statements for the the Mamiya they 7. Do the same thing, a different yeah. Format. 
yeah, they, they fulfill the same. They, they, they do Real the same things. You're right. <laughs> Real and yeah, beautiful viewfinders. Very well made, very rugged. I would say the Leica has the styling advantage because I'm not a big fan of the Mamiya 7 the way it looks. There's a there's something with the materiality I'm not a big fan of, but um, the they, they, they might be a little a little uh, fragile too. Can yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I've heard that. I mean, yeah. I have a yeah. 7 too, and it does not get much use because it is a little fragile, and it's also sort of the electronics past the point where I can probe and fix and figure. Yeah, I wouldn't want to open one of those things up. Whereas an M6 is not so different from your average Zorky. Yeah. But yeah, that that function is great. Um, It's interesting that, like, so I'm a big fan of your pictures as well. And you haven't talked about, um, I mean, a little bit about your pictures. Um, There's one, it's the last picture in the gallery of, um, the Instax camera. The last one is. Uh, oh, you're on my website. Apartment building. Oh yeah, it's it's. Um, let me reiterate this to the listeners. Uh, this is a much more fun conversation to have, and you can just click through Lucas's handmade camera section on his website, LucasLanders.com. Go there now. <laughs> um, yeah, the the last one is like a train and a uh, building in the background, apartment building in New York. Really, really brings me back. Um, but, but I, I, so I, I noticed that, that you started building a large format camera. Um, I also did this as well, probably because it was the easiest type of camera a couple of times I've, I've designed those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like, uh, maybe your style has, has pivoted a little bit or, um, you maybe always would have liked to, or run around and be more mobile. It seems like exploring places is, um, you know, kind of on your list of to-do pictures. So I would say my photography style, with respect to the handmade cameras, is slowly becoming less limited. As every camera I make, I feel a little bit freer in my ability to make images. And um, so with my most recent camera, my my uh, B35, as I as I named it i feel like very brave (laughs) when i hold it i can go into very very intense social situations and just shoot up a storm and not really fear any consequences and also do it in a way where i can do it stealth stealthily whereas with my older cameras i wasn't able to do that so that definitely limited my shooting style and i i do kind of like that like i get a big rush Hmm? and now i have a question is that because it's rugged and, you know, if somebody bumps into you, you know, it's it's not going to... Also fast to use. Which, which, oh, ca- okay. which, yeah. which camera, which name in the list on your website? Is it, is uh, it one of those? It's not actually, you know, it's not on my website. Ah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait, the B... Yeah. Oh, the B sixty six is. That was what I was looking at. That's that's my first yeah. metal one. That's that's a smaller okay. one, uh, a bigger one. Sorry. Uh, no, you'd have to go to my Instagram to see. Oh yeah, just B35. just Google the Landers B thirty five. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if it's on. Is it on Google? Let me see. Yeah, I just did. B- it's the first two hits for me. Five. Oh, is the okay? It's um, the one based on the Retina lens. Yep. Yeah. yeah okay. Thing. And that is on Instagram, and on Instagram, uh, Lucas is cropped underscore camera. Yes. Um, 
at cropped underscore camera. And oh, it's on um, the uh, zine page. Okay. Yeah, it's actually the first hit is a uh, post on Emulsive by me <laughs> about the zine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. that. So so what is it? What is it about it that makes you more confident in uh, a situation of, as you said, shooting up a storm versus uh, one of the other cameras? So I would say it's I have I have a lot of confidence in its functionality. Um, it's quick to operate. It's also um, very small and goes unnoticed, I would say, more often than not. I can, like, with my bigger cameras, people people see them. People, people notice them. And that makes it harder to, to shoot. Now, this camera being a big golden camera, it's still visible, but... It's it's a lot stealthier, and eventually, like I'll probably go the like a route and make them black or something like that to just increase my my shooting. All all you need on this is just some leatherette, or even better, uh, what is it that I have on my full shark uh, skin gaffer tape? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Racing stripes. Back to the yeah, I go back to my roots. (laughs) Yeah, I use this stuff called grip tack. um, That Uh is. It's very, um, yeah, it's grippy. It's like a, um, a a golf club grip on it. Okay, I have a million questions about the B35, actually. Okay. I'm, I'm really curious about it, but should we do that now, or should we work our way up through the other Lucas Landers cameras? Uh, get to it <laughs> so yeah well let's let's, let's i'm like dying to, let's go back to the um the the metal the first metal camera i made which is the first camera i made out of school which is the b30 b66 this camera i made um at the time i was dating a girl from uh someplace i can't remember <laughs> um but she was a jewelry maker and she was really good at working with brass and stuff like that and i was like huh I wonder what I can what I can make out of brass. I wonder how hard it would be to make a brass camera. So I did it <laughs> over the course of a few weeks. It was actually surprisingly fast um, to build this camera. I did it with her help. She helped me out a lot, actually. So I should kind of, you know, give her credit. Uh, Zoe Rogers, if you're listening, thank you. And um, so that that kind of re captured that spark that i had before of uh with the when i got the when i built the uh well okay when i said i said earlier this is the first camera i made out of school this is the first like quote unquote like real full camera i made out of school um so when i when i made that i kind of got hooked again and then um this was after i have had decided to go the light the route of the leica and so from there Every step of the way from there to where I am now and to the future is on the road to my version of the Leica M6, which in my mind uh, is obtainable. I, I think it's obtainable within probably 30 years. It's not It's not going to happen anytime soon. But so every iteration that I get, then go beyond that is focused on making the camera uh, or learn, sorry, learning a process that's new and conducive to my growth in that direction and making camera advancements that are conducive to that direction. So um, that's why I'm not really remaking cameras. This is also why I'm taking forever to make cameras, you know, because I take, you know, I make a camera and then I take six months to just refine 
what I what it is I learned during making that camera and then prep for the next camera that I'm going to make. So after I after I built this brass camera, I then spent six months or so just learning more and more about brass work. And I made a ton of stuff like just random trinkets and jewelry and stuff like that just as test. Um, and then I moved to the aluminum cameras which were uh i made i made two of those and they were made using um more refined processes so they're more precise you know the the first one was made the the brass camera was made with nothing more than a jeweler saw and a foul mm-hmm. and a blowtorch <laughs> hey, um, hey lucas can i ask you this um i know you you've got a bunch of youtube videos which kept me up uh, an entire night oh, watching. I forgot once. about the YouTube. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, you're, you're a YouTube superstar. Um, Am I? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And th- there's some that I can uh, remember vividly, and some that I cannot. Which ones did you start making YouTube videos about? I think I only made one camera on the YouTube videos. There's the aluminum one. Yeah, it's the you- aluminum one. Yeah, this is the second aluminum one I made. Okay. We'll get there. Sorry. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, We're almost there. Yeah. 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 Um, that, that, so that, that, the, the making the YouTube, the reason I did that, uh, you might think this is weird, but I used to be a, a very shy person. I still am. And the YouTube video is actually not necessarily about making content for YouTube. It was more about getting me out of my shell. <laughs> It was more. I was like, I need to. I need to become a more outgoing person. What's the best way to become an outgoing person? I know. I'll make a YouTube series. Yeah, I don't because know. you don't. You don't actually have to leave the basement. It's perfect, exactly. Right? It's it's a beautiful solution to <laughs> to be more social. I mean, I don't think you really appear in any of them. It's just your hands. Well, you know, I'm, I was working up to it. <laughs> um, so when you get that, when you finally make a, a perfect camera that surpasses the m6 we'll get to see your face uh, yeah that's that's the surprise everyone right, okay. my face yeah um and i tell you what it worked it worked it did work like recording a youtube video is was the most difficult thing i'd ever done in my entire life <laughs> i was a nervous wreck the entire time and it the first episode took me 20 hours of recording and i, I can prove it because I have the recordings. <laughs> it took me 20 hours of just repeating the same stupid two minutes over and over again. Well, it went through many different iterations, but it was it was a, a learning experience, a growing experience. I'm I'm very glad I did it, and maybe one day I'll go back to it. Um, I would I would say you have not completely shaken off the engineering part of your past. No, and I hope I you know I'm very <laughs> I'm very proud of that because with. With going to Pratt, I learned that there's a lot of people who, who who can do one or the other, but there's not many that can do both. And so I had to, I was, I would say I'm more naturally an engineer, but I was forced to be an artist. And I think that gives me a unique perspective on a lot of things. And hopefully, I think it's the perspective that's going to get me to that Leica M6 quality camera. Um, but... So to roll back to the aluminum camera, after the aluminum camera, I started really focusing on, well, I built the aluminum camera. It was a blast. I got to learn how to weld, which I'm sure you guys know is the most exciting thing you can ever do. Well, I weld a lot and I've gotten used to it. Yeah? 
Do you, st- yeah. uh, you you don't get the tingles anymore? No, I still like it. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. get like I so I have a TIG welder, and it is it is beautiful. It's um, I I do it in my basement. I, I know I probably shouldn't, but now it's fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm doing aluminum. I'm not doing brass with it, so there's nothing fuming. And just like holding that like 200 amps worth of power right in your hand, you're like, ooh, this is good. Mm-hmm. Um. So with the aluminum camera, I really focused on things like tolerances, um, engineering, like what proportions matter when it comes to building something. And then uh, from that, I started really getting into horology, which, mm-hmm. uh, which is for people listening, uh, the study of like watchmaking, basically, and the processes required for making a watch. And so that's where the where we come to the B35. The, the horology wormhole is one that got me as well. Yes. It yes. Is, it was something I'm intensely interested in, and we should talk about more later when I plan to ask you about the Kodak Retina. <laughs> yes. It's it's something that is infinitely enjoyable. There's The information out there is unfortunately kind of slim. you got to do a lot of hunting to find good information. But when you find it, it's like a goldmine. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you have... Um, you know, if I can recommend a book yes. already. This is this is not the segment. <laughs> sure, but yeah. I'll jump the gun. Uh, George Daniels has two books on watchmaking. I have one of them. Uh, George Daniels is the master watchmaker. He's ridiculously good. Um, he passed away a while back, but um, amazing guy. And his books are a gold mine. And I would recommend both of them. And anyway, so when I got to this camera, that's what I started doing is focusing on horology and precision and polish. So this camera took me freaking forever. I've never been more stressed in my life when building this camera. And what it what it took for me to get there was like so much stress and dedication that I'll I'll never forget. <laughs> What it was like, you know, the six months that it took me to build this camera, it was actually nearly a year in the work of building this camera, um, hundreds upon hundreds of hours. And um, but now that it's done, like I can really just sit back and just like be proud of what I made. And I'm like really excited to shoot with it. Every time I pick it up and shoot with it, I'm like, damn, this is a good camera. <laughs> yeah, that's great. yeah. And it takes good images, too. I think this is the first one where it's like, okay, the images that are taking are akin, its usage and image quality is akin to modern cameras, I would say. Pretty akin to modern-ish cameras. Oh, sure. It's a 35, and it looks like it's a rangefinder. It's got a Kodak. We're talking about the uh, AL6 Mark II? No, no, we're past that. No, no, we're Landers. Are we on the Landers 35? The B35. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so it's got a Schneider lens made for Kodak. Yeah. It's a 50, yep. uh, 50 millimeter lens, and it looks like it was a Xenon 50 f2. Yeah, and yeah. so Probably Kodak Retina. Yeah, right. this is the Retina. Yeah, so this ca- it's still in 80% completion mode, I would say, because I I got to the point where it would work and work consistently and i decided to then just shoot with it for the entire summer so summer is coming to an end so i'm eventually going to have to actually finish this camera this is where i am with a major project as well it's like good enough to shoot with but it's not good enough to uh call it done 
Yeah. Okay, so so the the shutter is built into the lens. So what would you what would you say is the most um, what's the thing about this camera that makes the difference? Is it the film transport uh, or is it the handling and ergonomics? Uh, what is it that you really broke through with on this camera? So I would say it's so a few things is this is the first camera I made that actually has geared mechanisms inside mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. and that was a huge hurdle for me to get across because I had to make those gears myself. And to do that requires a ton of knowledge that um, at the time wasn't very accessible. And so I spent a lot of time reading and researching, trying to find ways that I can do it with my limited shop. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, the it I wanted it to achieve certain levels of precision, which I think I was able to, to get to, um, to, it's not as smooth as I would like it to be, but it's a lot smoother than I was expecting it to be. Um, I definitely put a lot, of, you know, work into the gear train, getting it to be smooth. And there's like cams inside I had to deal with that. Um, cams are very tricky. <laughs> Anyone who's worked because with it's cams. Sticking. Sorry. Because of sticking or precision following. Um, I would say that like. I mean, I guess like shaping, like coming up with the shape of a cam, is is very oh true. interesting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, sure. Like, yeah, yeah, because it's I like have, hmm? I have the problem. So I, I have a couple of rangefinder designs that work in CAD, but um, when you go to 3D print them, like unless I were to make the thing, I don't know, four feet long, the tolerances are just not there. I, my yeah. rangefinder goes into retrograde as the cam follower goes up and down bumps that are bigger than the yeah. you know difference in the cam. Yeah. And I'm thinking so I'm I'm speaking mostly towards the cam and the film advanced hardware. Mm-hmm. So there's like basically a cam in there that allows you to advance the film uh and then retract it, but then you can't advance it again until you press the shutter button. And uh-huh. also if you retract it halfway, you can still advance it the rest of the way. Um, stuff like that. Those kind of cams are also so did, difficult. Did you take like the classic like a camming mechanisms for these? Or I tried to. I tried to develop. Components? I I tried to come up with my own components as much as possible. Oh. Yeah, just uh, more or less make it ground up. Unique. So it does use like at the end, it does have to interface with the retina lens, but oh. everything else I wanted to be my own design. Did you? Did you pull off any of the optics from the Retina rangefinder? Oh uh, yeah, the rangefinder is also the Retina. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Cool. Well, that makes yeah, sense. I, I have it's one. already already set for the lens. So. Yeah. 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 And um, so I learned a lot, uh, but I would say the main thing that I learned is polish. Uh, that's something that I've been really getting into is hand tool work. Uh, like very fine detailed work um, getting just like doing like when a watchmaker makes a watch, he'll spend weeks polishing mm-hmm. every little component. And it's that's a lot, a lot like lens making in that respect that mm-hmm. this microscopic stuff really matters. Yeah. And in the case of like with a watch, like it doesn't, it matters to a degree, but it doesn't matter to the extent that they do it because they're going it's about going above and beyond it's about this is all we need but let's do 10 times that to make something that's truly unique and i think when you see like if if any of you here have held like a really really expensive watch there's things that you notice 
when you look at it in real life that you can't that I don't think photographs are capable of capturing like the, mm-hmm. the shine and the depth of like um, a brushed surface on a exquisitely brushed stainless steel watch case. You're like, wow, this looks there's like depth to it that I've never been able to experience before. Or when you see a uh, a, a bevel that has a uh, a black mirror polish on you, you're like, wow, that really does just turn into a void when you when the light hits it right. Have you have you gotten into macro photography of of this stuff? Because I have some of my grandfather's old instruments for surveying, civil engineering. You know, hundred uh-huh. years hundred years ago, and I've been taking macro photos of the actual equipment to get right in and see what you're talking about. Uh-huh. Um, and where you know, you, if you get in close and take pictures, you can see the marks of the person who made it. You know, that the handwork is there. Yeah, yeah. And, but I think like when when you deal with like certain things it's it does become it comes almost otherworldly when you see it in real life um mm-hmm. like if um i'll never forget the first time i saw the face i went to I, i'm a big fan of the new york horological society and i started going to their meetings and i saw um a grand seiko when i was there and i had seen plenty of grand seikos on the internet and when i when i and the pictures they look nice but when you see it in real life, they they um they have this blue, um kind of like a spiral brushed background on the on the face dial, and it just like you can almost fall into it when you see it in real life. It's so crazy what it actually looks like, and that I want to achieve that level of polish on my cameras. So that's a lot of what I've been focusing on. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely not what I focus on. <laughs> yeah. It is kind of the antithesis of 3D printing. No, yeah. but I'm trying to do all of the same things, right? Sure. Well, not yeah. not in terms of making a beautiful object, right? Your your cameras are well. You're making an object. Themselves. You're making an object that's attractive and beautiful, but in a very different way. Your approach. Your your your. Yeah, less beautiful. <laughs> well, that's up but. to the viewer, you know. Sure. But, but I mean, what you're trying to do mechanically, I am also trying to do, I think um, it is tough to push the limits of plastic gearing. And at some point, I would say, okay. Yeah. But so, so I mean, I I think that this opens up uh, one of the questions that I really wanted to ask, and that was about materials. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the start, the the first, yeah, well, the first view camera was wood. The um, the instant press camera was wood. Then you started mm-hmm. moving over to metals. And, yeah. um, you know, whereas from, you know, the, uh, and, and then you started to go the route of milling as opposed to like uh, Ethan and I you both do the 3D printing, which is additive. Mm-hmm. As opposed to subtractive, like uh, uh, of milling um, and machining, I should say, uh, rather than milling. Um, so, why do it, I, I think maybe you've already answered it, but uh, but maybe you can expand a little bit on it. Why did you choose this metal as opposed to something like three D printing, where where you would have a much faster turnaround? So I would say that it's with, the best. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, it, what it comes down to, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I have a, like, I have that goal of making a camera that's better than the M6, and I think the only way to achieve that is through through metal. I don't, I don't 
think I could make a camera that I could say with confidence is better than an M6 out of plastic. Okay, now, sure. Yeah. So, sure. so in my mind, if I were to, with that goal in mind, switch to 3D, 3D printing. Now, I use 3D mm-hmm. printing a lot in the shop. I uh, love the lost 3D printed casting stuff. Yeah, and I yeah I did that in the uh, in the video series, and um, I do have like like that's that's I would say it's a part of the process. Uh, I definitely consider 3D printing part of the process, but it's not the end result. Okay. Like a lot of these cameras, I 3D print mockups. Like I'll 3D print the the case so I see how it feels in the hand and the size of it. Okay. Sure. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, and metal metals. I mean, you know, we all know metals have a degree, allow a degree of precision you, you can't get with yes. other materials, and that's part of it. But they also they also have behaviors. So the way things expand, a big part of horology and similar processes is dealing with things like temperature change, you know, humidity, mm-hmm. corrosion. There's all these things that can attack a machine and ruin its precision. And you know, the way you combine different materials is is a big part of that. I've been, for instance, amazed at my dad's old Crown Graphic, which I use, because of the the range of materials that are mixed together in that. Mm-hmm. It it's improbable that it works as well as it does, but they really did think it through. They put they used stainless where they needed it. They used wood mm-hmm. where it was best. They used each material in a way that it was able to kind of dance with the other materials, and that's a big big part of it. So, yeah. you know, there's room for plastic and, and metal being combined, for instance, which is something you see a lot in modern cameras. But, uh, Not on a Landers, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's um, also like a perceived quality with yeah. with plastic. Like, you know, if you look at cell phones, it's probably actually a good idea to make a cell phone out of plastic, as most of them are. But people like that aluminum and glass iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've, I've even, been thinking that I can make things that are not stronger than an icon, but more durable just by virtue of being like a simple, big, heavy block of plastic. Um, yeah. But So yeah. It, it matters. The intention matters a lot. Like if you're making of an aesthetic, beautiful item, uh, plastic isn't the best option always. But if you're making purely practicality, plastic's a great choice. Sometimes. I, th- I think your use of metal really allows you to make things small, right? Like clearly, yeah, and, and this yeah. is actually a question that I have for you, and I'm, I'm noticing some very specific parts of uh, the B35 that that raise this question. It's like, um, so I obviously prioritize like beefiness over, um, over smallness or, mm-hmm. or just sort of that has to do with the material durability right yeah and so i wind up making cameras because i'm making gears out of plastic pretty large right yeah a gear might be a hundred times the size of the gear you have to make and so i notice um i i've been working on taking apart a bunch of cameras from my junk drawer uh, among them one is a kodak retina um mm-hmm. it's a three big c um which i bought in a lot for maybe five dollars it was broken the cocking rack had lost its teeth and so so what the cocking rack is is uh lucas you probably know this but mm-hmm. this um when you wind the lever um the advanced lever it turns um you know a shaft which turns a little bit a little pinion which then pulls this rack um to the outside of the camera body which then has a 90 degree rack that's facing downward that turns 
um, a little shaft that comes out at another little pinion gear, which then rotates a cocking mechanism on the retina um, shutter. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that you have some of this exposed, right? I see the shaft of yep. the the um, cocking pinion that's that's sticking out to the front of the lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if you used a rack like that or came up with a, a novel system. And, you know, this, it's a really small, like amazingly compact, really nice camera, right? Um, oh, yeah. I wonder if you prioritize first getting it as small as you could um, or making it as durable as you could. Um, two questions. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that, like, making it as compact as possible it was a big priority so what i kind of did was i took when designing the camera was i took uh the minimum amount of distance that would be needed to for me to create the film advanced hardware which is you know the the film holder on the right or sorry the left the sprocket and the spool and I tried my hardest not to expand on that at all, and I don't think I had to. I think I was able to make it more or less. So this is effectively, right now, with my uh, machining capabilities, about as small as I can get. And I also, then when it came to making the vertical height, I um, didn't want to have to buy a piece of brass bigger than... I. I think it was four inches because <laughs> it's like they come from McMaster and like two, Lucas four Lattis are like six. Right, right, right. Fit right. In a small block of brass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like, shoot, if I make it, cause it was like, it was tough though. Cause I want, if I was like, man, if I had another eighth of an inch, it'd be a lot easier to make, but I was be like ordering your brass from a metric supplier. <laughs> that's what, yeah, maybe if I can find one here in the States, I don't even know. Well, I don't, yeah. someone will ship you a piece from somewhere else. Yeah. yeah, I actually met a guy here in Jersey who, uh, Tom Machinist on Instagram, he's a great guy, we talk all the time. Uh, he does a lot of brass work, and he's just in Jersey, which is a quick quick ride away. And he's always like, yeah, come look through my scrap bin. I'm like, oh, God, I really need to get out there. Because <laughs> he has a, yeah. just a whole dumpster full of brass. And I'm like, man, mm-hmm. that'd be nice. Um so yeah, the size was important. I wanted it as small as possible. And what was the other question? Well, so so sort of prioritizing size over durability. How did you? Um, what and and um, so I, I guess size comes first. How did you deal with uh, turning this pinion inside the body? So I came up with a solution where there's still a rack because there's that right angle that I have to get around. And unless I was able to make bevel gears, which I'm yeah, able to. Yeah, <laughs> tiny for bevel gears, but it's... Yeah, I was like, I don't want to deal with that. So I did a rack. It's it's a lot different geometry. Like, it's a lot longer than it is in the retina. Um, yeah. Just because it interfaces with the the main gear stack, which is what I call... Like basically, the, the sh- there's the shaft that goes from the film advance knob all the way down to the bottom. And on there, there's a whole bunch of stuff, and I call that the main gear stack. And it interfaces with the main gear stack in a different spot, kind of. So um, it's a lot. It's a different shape, but more or less does the same thing. Uh, is it is it much thicker? And here here's one thing. So I've been looking for these racks, right? And I can get a rack for like 50 bucks, but... You know, it was a camera I paid five dollars for, but it's yeah. a nice camera. And I thought, like, to laser cut the 
uh, flat shape would be easy to bend it precisely on that 90 degree bend because it's I was thinking about like what the tooling must have been uh, in this factory like each one of hundreds of pieces probably had its own you know dude with a lathe and a mill mm-hmm. station um, well this this, this one the, was bent the, this thing I could tell you the manufacturing you can tell by looking at the teeth it's just simply stamped uh-huh. <laughs> so there's no the teeth aren't machined um, it's they just like take a, a, a die and just like just like a big machine stamps it out of stainless steel and they just bend it um that being said i made mine out of a a flat piece of stainless steel that i then machined and very meticulously cut the teeth on with an involute cutter on a manual machine so you have an involute cutter that's great yeah so all the gears are at uh mod uh 0.04 oh Wow. No, no, 0.4. Yeah, not 0.04. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so very small, small gears. Um, and so I bought a whole set of them from Russia. And uh, yeah. I can get I, to mod one on a 3D printer. Okay. Uh, That's but, a little more than twice the size. But your gears are, you know, how thin? A cup, like a millimeter or two thin. One, uh, one sixteenth of an inch. I use hey guys, inch. what's up? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I have no idea what mod one means. Can oh, you, um, sorry. Can you fill me in here? Uh, so, so that's. Oh, okay. No, you go ahead. Talk about involute gears. So there, so involute is a type of profile on a gear tooth. So gear teeth can be shaped many different ways. And to, uh, involute's a very popular one, especially used in like stuff like a camera. Like chances are, if you're shooting a camera, it's got an involute tooth pattern. It's um, the there's, smoothest turning. Yeah, it provides, it, but not is, the strongest. So, so let's start with the most primitive idea of teeth. That would be like saw teeth that are just a zigzag. Um, and does an involute gear then have more of a curved shape to the tooth? Yeah. So, has, you, so, so it, the tooth itself has almost a camming action. Exactly. So it has a curve such that the pressure angle between the two meshing gears is constant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can look up in McMaster, or sorry, in the Machinist handbooks, they have great diagrams that show all of these different kind of teeth profile and how they're generated because they're they're generated mathematically, and you kind of determine, you know, using a lot of a lot of math, which I don't necessarily understand. You can you can draw this tooth profile using nothing but a compass. It's mm-hmm. quite quite interesting. Um, cycloidal is a, is the kind of tooth profile you would find in like a clock for instance and that's a very very basic um tooth profile I that's basically that deep into horology yet <laughs> yeah the, the cycloidal it's like basically you just cut a slot you know slots with a straight saw and then you just round the edges very simple to make mm-hmm. um and that's why they're used in clocks a lot because a lot of people using hand tools can make them um so yeah I was, i'm able to make very thin teeth uh very thin gears about one and a half millimeters usually is what i go and here's something i would like to to <laughs> ask again what uh you mentioned that you cut some of those gears out of stainless steel did you cut all of the gears out of stainless steel no uh so the gears the pinions are out of um i can't remember what kind of steel it is but it's a heat treatable steel mm-hmm. um and then the the so that's the pinions, and then the wheels were all cut out of brass. 
Um, and what I did is I made I did them out of stock. So I basically took a big round piece and I cut about like four inches of that gear profile and then just sure. lopped them off. So because a lot of them I needed multiple gears of. So I just made a stock that I can then lop them off of. And I don't put a hole into them until after it's been lopped off so I can get it fairly concentric using a, a wheel collet in my lathe. Because um, concentricity was the biggest thing holding me back with gears. So I had to add a whole bunch of steps to ensure concentricity because I was getting these gears that are horribly lopsided and that just jams your mechanism. Mm -hmm. And as I'm preparing for my next project, which we'll get to <laughs> at some point, I need absolute concentricity with these gears. And that, so that's, I, an, that's an advantage of the old press method because you can set up the dies, get them perfect. And they make and even, though it, even though it might be a little bit chintzy, at least it's perfectly concentric. And yeah, yep. I, I want to just break in and say that I'm kind of fascinated by the sort of mid-range cameras. I know you, you're trying to make the best camera ever, uh -huh. but I've, I sort of like the, the classic folding cameras from a similar time period like the because they were all made with... Well, I'm thinking more of the 120 cameras. Oh, okay. Uh, because they were all made of, of like pressed, you know, sh it's thin sheet metal that's pressed in in dies with using kind of tools that I'm more keyed into. Mm -hmm. But they still managed to get precision by making a few key parts precise. And I yeah. like that balance where you have this sort of freeform quick parts mixed with a few precise parts to get um, kind of get. It's just this. It's it gives you more room for for cheating, I guess, which which I appeal appeals to me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I think that's the, that's the great identifier of a well-engineered camera is the they they know like in a system like a 120 camera, there's probably like three or four points where accuracy is 100% critical, and so they they put all their effort into those components, mm -hmm. and then the rest of them can just kind of be made cheaply, and you still get a camera that works freaking 60 70 years later mm -hmm. so um th that's that's what i would call a well-engineered camera and that's something that like i think i i have to strive a lot to learn because i'm not classically trained as an engineer so a lot of those concepts don't really rub off very easily and they're very hard to grasp it's like why why is it that this gear is important and this gear isn't in a train or why why is this shaft tight and this shaft loose like why you're calling, why, you're, you're calling that an engineering pro problem but i think it's actually a craftsmanship issue and and that's from an era when there was less of a hard line between craftspeople and engineers they were you know mm -hmm. they were, there was more overlap yeah sure yeah and but we can learn we can learn about it through engineering though and that's sure. that's mm -hmm. my goal <laughs> yeah yeah and I spend, oh, hmm? no you go ahead yeah no, 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 please. <laughs> oh, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say I spend so much time figuring out how you can make a mechanism that will work and work durably over time. Um, it's the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> that, that you cannot, you can change a lot of variables, but one variable you cannot change is like uh, precision beyond the point, right? Um yeah, it's, it's kind of like the, the idea of like I had these 3D printers that I started with um, that were pretty decent given that they were made out of absolute garbage. They managed uh -huh. to use a bunch of like good cell phone parts, a couple of motors, and uh, just like wet cardboard and made something that could print all right. Um, and I think of that like my girlfriend's Hyundai. It's like 
a real feat of engineering, right? But it's made out of all garbage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that like that. So engineering drive though. Yeah, engineer. So I think I kind of think of engineering separate from um, build quality. So for instance, like a, a piece of cardboard that can be folded into something very unique is could be very good engineering but very poor execution you know if, right sure um and so i also think that, really good engineering will take the build quality into account of course yeah i mean ideally the two should be married but like if you go to like walmart and you find like some cheap piece of crap it's probably very very well engineered and it has to be for them to get it that cheap um but then they just make it out of crap so mm-hmm. yeah they have to it does, yeah you're right it has to be and what i want to do it has to be both it has to mm-hmm. be both and I think we should all be striving for that, um, if not both, a fine compromise. Because mm-hmm. it can't, you know, you don't have to make the best camera in the world. Uh, but I mean, you're you making. Make, you, I, I would say like you were, you were clearly the world's best homemade camera maker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the goal. That's the goal. <laughs> but. Um, no, like I think that like best best is obviously subjective. Like if you look at it from the perspective of no one's ever gonna own one of my cameras. How does like whereas you make cameras that hundreds, potentially thousands of people can own. How does that alter the definition of best? Um, that well, uh, the fanciest oh, cameras. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that also asks the question, um, are you ever, and well, maybe it actually answers the question, uh, are you ever planning on making any of these available to anybody? Um, or, uh, I mean, what would it take for... Museum of Modern uh, Art. Yeah, well, how, much, how much money do you need for a year's work? <laughs> That's what yeah. it comes down to. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, right. but eventually, uh, eventually, you know, I mean, as we all know, um, if if the first time around takes 10 units of time, the second time around mm-hmm. takes four units of time and the third time around takes three and a half, you know, um, so that, that you could do uh, theoretically a production. Um, I've, yeah, I definitely least, thought about that. You're getting more CNC components. Yeah. And upfront time. But no, but you're you're. I think that what you're doing, I think it's really admirable, and you're basically raising your standards beyond what it's practical to produce mass produce. I think that's without an entire to. giant corporation behind you. Yeah. If if someone came up to me and said, "Here's ten thousand dollars, can you make me a camera?" I'd think about it. <laughs> I'd think about it. Um, yeah, but it reminds me of a story that uh, there was a guy who used to crush cars to make sculpture. Uh-huh. And a friend of uh, tried to you know talk him into making him something, and he said, "Yeah, I'll crush a beer can for you." <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so maybe that's I mean what even ten thousand dollars is is going to be. I mean, you could, of course you could make a good camera for that, but yeah. your 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 RB thirty five or your Landers B thirty five, that's that's going to be more expensive. It really is. Yeah, it's something yeah. that especially like I do. I think that one day could I do it. Maybe, maybe. Um, am I try? Am, am I striving for that? No, because I'll be honest. I have a good job. I, mm-hmm. I like my job. Uh, I work full time and I come home and I build cameras and I'm happy with that. 
And at the end of the day, it's going to take me 35 years to make this camera that I want to make. And I'm okay with that. I'm not in a rush. Um, so would it really though, you're, I mean, you're pretty close to making something like that, right? I so think, you're cutting gears, you're CNC yeah. metal bodies. You don't have the optics, but I mean, I assume I'm never going to do the optics. Right. So, so you can already buy those optics. You have a fancy enough camera. You could buy an M6 and scrap it and take, <laughs> take the optics. Uh, yeah. Or I, uh, I don't know. Um, do you really I, think you're that far away? So if I if I go the route of horology, which I really do want to do, I, I believe I am because there's so basically I'm I'm 85% there, but that last 15% is gonna take 10 times as long to do, and yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think you like, know what, what you're talking about. Yeah. What what types of things uh, what types of things do you think stand in your way or, or that you're interested in learning? So uh, polish is a bit like, so hand, handwork, I would say is a big one. Handwork just takes experience. And I come home and I, and I foul, you know, for, I foul like little trinkets of metal for a few hours every so often. And every time I get a little bit better, but then I see a, a, a master watchmaker pick up a file and what he can do with it. And I'm like, holy crap, I could like I consider myself to be the top one percent of filing. <laughs> it's a weird brag, but no, no, I, I I'm actually in that same category. I yeah. file a lot. I filed yeah. for thousands and thousands of hours. Yeah. And it does take the time when you teach other people, and they don't know what the heck you're talking about. It, it you realize it does take a long time. It yeah. just does. I file in sand, but I'm always impatient with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, well, I'll never forget, I was watching a video about a watch Patek Philippe made. It's their most complicated watch ever. They put like 25 complications in this watch, and it's insane, and it costs like $2.5 million. And they walk up to one of the polishers, and you know, Patek Philippe, they have an army of polishers, hundreds of people working for them, just polishing. And it was a woman working on a tiny stainless steel piece. It was a spring. It was a click, as they call it in, uh, in watchmaking. And she said, she looked at the camera and said, I've been polishing this piece for about two and a half weeks now, and I plan to spend another two weeks on it before I'm done. And this is a single component <laughs> inside of a watch that takes mm -hmm. her nearly over a month to polish. Man, if I were into that much polishing, I would be making lens elements. Yeah, yeah, it's it's neurotic. Yeah, but he's it's he's already got thirty five years in just getting the machinery together. Now you want yeah. to start take another sixty years of polishing. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm never, I'm never. I told myself a long time ago, I'm never making the lenses. I made that fact to myself because I know I'll just drive myself crazy. Um, but yeah, I I do think it will take thirty five years to get or or let's put it this way, I'm gonna be making cameras forever probably. I seriously don't. I mean, I'm already so invested. I don't think I'll ever stop. And everyone I make will be the, the best camera. At, at a certain point, everyone I make will be the best camera in the world, according to me. <laughs> so, um, we're back. <laughs> Um, okay, so, uh, uh, what have you guys been up to this week? What have you been, 
what you've been building. Um, uh, Ethan, why don't you tell us about what you've been doing? Um, okay, so I think we recorded before I did this. Um, uh, my friend Becky, uh, Astro Beck on Instagram, um, wanted to know if I could make uh, just a flange for a RB67 uh, film bank. And mm -hmm. I had already made that for the homunculus. And so I finally, I had been meaning to do this. So I, I made, um, you know, a, a flange that you can screw on or glue on to a homemade camera. And it just, you know, fits a RB67 back perfectly. And then I, you know, if you give a mouse a cookie, um, I made the same sort of thing for the lens mount. So if you just want to throw a, um, you know, Mamiya Universal Press lens on something, you can either screw or glue that mount um, onto your project, which was kind of an interesting thing to do. And then I got like real into it, and uh, Becky was making a pinhole camera that is, again, probably more beautiful and uh, wood. But um, I just, while I was at it, I made a pinhole version of that uh, RB67 back thing and so i just made another little quick camera that works pretty well this is um, great this is what i've been waiting for I'm excited. yeah I, I was sort of just banging out short projects i've got a lot of traveling to do and um the the bigger projects are are sort of tough to get in because you just get in a wormhole don't bathe for three days just sit out in the shop and uh do that that sort of thing so um yeah, um, so I did those, and then I spilled a cup of coffee on the computer that I usually use for drafting and then ordered another one, and so that'll be here in a couple of days. But while I was pissed off about this, I bought a giant 3D printer uh, so that I can print some 8x10 OG cameras. Um, and then also I was like a little uh, – I didn't, I didn't know what else to start next, um, hey, I, I have a question. Uh, yeah. I have a question about the eight by ten OGs. Yeah. So, are you just taking your um, your files and no, making them larger, or the okay, ones. okay? Yeah, I'll, I'll redraw it. It's not that complicated a drawing. Okay, but, okay. Uh, I I redraw most of it around the nose cone anyway, and so I'll take a couple of days and just draw it around an eight by ten film holder, and right. maybe I'll make some right. beefier. I yeah, can't the, figure the out film, the film holder won't be an exact uh, multiple of a four by five. They'll they'll be a proportion right. change. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean I've drafted that because I offer like free uh, custom nose cones. Uh, I have maybe done I don't know fifty custom nose cones by now, so I think I can pretty quickly. Um, yeah. yeah, that sounds really cool. I have uh, a couple 8x10 film holders, and I have a lens that almost covers 8x10. It would be, uh, but it would be a kind of a gigantic camera. I mean, this is something that... Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to put a neck strap on it or not. <laughs> uh, but it, So I didn't really want to do this, and a couple people had approached me here and there, and I, um, I've always basically said, buy me a printer, and I'll think about it but i just i don't know i wanted one for the first time when i started making these direct paper positives and so uh, at that point uh, i would like to make a direct paper eight by ten i have another like sort of studio camera but uh, i like hand cameras a lot and so 
I'm going to, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I would also love to shoot Lucas's Polaroid camera or my cameras with Polaroids. Um, but you know, I can't just shoot packs and packs of them every day, but, uh, eight by 10 black and white paper positives are, are pretty good. So I got, I got into that. Um, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's what right. finally got me to do that. Oh, also, I took apart a Retina and a Zorky 4K that I had that was broken. And I think I put the shutter together properly, and I have the rest of the camera to go. I, I have right. been thinking about getting one of those Zorkies to take apart. They look yes. pretty fun. Yes. So I <laughs> I got mine um, actually for free because I ordered a body and a lens. I really just wanted the lens. The oh, body nice. came totally broken so it gave me a refund for the body and then years later i had it sitting around my camera pile and i had had the success with the retina but um i didn't have the cocking rack and i'm still on the hunt for a retina 3c cocking rack mm-hmm. um and we'll drive year anyway um yeah i knew i had this camera lying around and um i have made some like a shutter stuff in plastic but have not implemented that in uh in a camera yet. And I know you have actually worked on some like a shutter stuff, which might be where, where we're heading this conversation, but um, I thought it was worthwhile now that I can strip it. So I watched that guy. Uh, I think we talked about this on the internet. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The guy, he's from New Zealand. He tears yeah. down and rebuilds them piece by piece. And he like degreases everything, lubes it, and, um, puts it back hey, he together. He does a good job. Yeah, he does a really good job. I'm not, yeah. I'm not up to that point yet i have some bent screwdrivers that scratch screws but it's just my camera so whatever you know yeah. um he's definitely he's very he's very detail oriented uh for people at home who aren't in the loop there's this guy on youtube who gets a consistent four views on his videos i think uh but he creates good content he, he just takes apart retinas and puts them back together and uh they're great <laughs> yeah he, he does super in-depth like he knows um, everything about it, right? He, he's not even like putting the screws in particular order. He's just throwing them in a degreaser. He knows every single screw. And there's got to be what 500 pieces in that camera? Uh, maybe not that many, but there every one is different. Let's if you just it. assemble the escapements and the shutter. Well, uh, you know, there is also I've heard in general that retinas frequently do need repair. Uh, so all right. It's well, there, good, there's not it, a good dust seal on them. That's, I think, one of right. the downfalls. And the rack is honestly a weak point. It's think mm-hmm. a of, right. You know, a lot of people so that, so in other words, he has lots of practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I so, think it would be nice for somebody to make a stainless steel gear set uh, of all of the shutter cocking gears for the Retina. But then maybe you just break some other things that weren't engineered to take that yeah. stress. Yeah. Oh, right. That could be the safety, yeah. Yeah, you put it in a new differential, all of a sudden you start breaking axles. Yeah, maybe that is the weak point. Maybe that's the part that's meant to be replaced, and it just... Which was probably cool in the 60s, right? So so you should just make a replacement that's sort of like a cartridge that you could just put in, I don't know, dissolve the gel away, and then... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have seen people online do, like, resin gears... And they're pretty strong. So if you get a resin printer, mm-hmm. yeah. that might be an so, option. So I've been thinking about resin printing or uh, laser cutting metal. Um, I have access actually to a giant CNC mill. Um, nice. But I 
I've just done hand milling. I've not done CNC milling. And so well, um, I need I need like a good two months to just not do anything else. I know I'm yeah. going to get sucked into that. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> I will say that, like, as as a person who has both, the moment you get CNCs, like, you kind of, you kind of, I think there's like this big illusion that once you get CNC, everything gets better, but it's not really the no. case. No, no, no. I, I mean, I know yeah. people think this about 3D printing. People think this about. Yeah. There's a guy who will remain nameless who always comes into the hacker space asking why we're not like making parts for him, and it's like, dude, it's a place for you to do work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and and so like yeah, I, I think uh, people don't understand that a yeah. uh, CNC job is ten times the work of just hand milling one thing. Yeah. Uh, for the first one, but then the the second one is slightly easier and still probably requires a lot of yeah. hand finishing. Now <laughs> you understand why things. I never make the same thing twice, and I probably never will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're yeah, if you're manual machining, that that second one is always so tedious. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, Lucas, what is that next uh, camera that we you were alluding to before? Um, what what is it that we're are you working on it yet? No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> so I'm still taking I'm taking the whole year off from starting a new project. Right. Uh, come the end of summer, which is now, I'm gonna I tell myself I'm gonna actually finish the B35. Uh, it's gonna be a chore. Uh, so I'll finish the B35. 90% of what I'm doing right now is just random small little projects where, like, I'll literally pick pick up a piece of metal and file it into a shape or something like that. Just honing my skills. Um, little machining projects. I I have um I have this new Bantam CNC machine, and I'm working on like a really fun project with it that I hope to finish up this week. That's just for fun. So I'm in the for fun phase of my work where I'm just doing random stuff. Uh, I actually, next, I kind of want to make a sextant. Mm. Uh, it's something that I've always wanted because I used to be really into geocaching as a kid. And one time, my dad and I tried using topo maps to uh, find geocaches, and it was the most fun I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And so I got really into all that kind of like cartography and stuff, and I've always wanted a sextant. Cause, yeah, that would be really fun to try and just go out and determine where I'm at in the world. So that is probably the next big project I'm going to be working on, but there is the next big camera that's coming up next year. I plan on taking the whole year, January 1st, I'm going to start and maybe finished by the next January, <laughs> but it's going to be a cloth shutter that I'm not actually basing off of Leica. I'm basing it off of a Nikon F. Nice. Yeah. I mean, a Nikon F is based on a Leica. The timing mechanism is better. Yeah, it's it's my, it's my very Nikon, similar. My yeah. Nikon F right now gets uh, it's one thousandth of a second speed. I have I'm ashamed to say it's about a thousand and five. It's so far off. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great design. Yeah, yeah it's very robust and it's it's louder, but it's also more like I was kind of taking a peek. And I think I, that it's, I got a '50s Nikon F that I've never CLA'd that still works great, and I use mm-hmm. it often. It's one of my yeah. favorite cameras. It's my go-to SLR. <laughs> yeah, I have I I have two of them, and that's kind of the main reason why I'm basing my shutter off of it is is because I'm going to take them apart. <laughs> I feel <laughs> hopefully I'm going to be able to get them back together. I'm probably not going to make my own slow speed, slow speed escapement. I'm probably just nab it from one of these guys. Mm-hmm. Um. 
I do eventually want to make my own Slurpee escapements. That is part of the process. But for now, not working on that. And it's not going to be it's not going to be an SLR. It's going to be a rangefinder. Mm-hmm. My plan is to to take a one of those um, Zeiss rangefinders from the Polaroid cameras and recam it to work with uh, M mount lenses. And so great, um, great. Yeah, Nikon shutter, Zeiss rangefinder, M mount around front that is that's the goal that's that's the next camera uh if i can pull this off this would be the first camera that i'm actually confident in saying is because this is going to be the first shutter and i think once i start putting the shutters in yeah that's when it becomes like i'm making cameras now mm-hmm. i'm like that's because like right now like i'm not using the shutter i i hesitate to say that i made this camera you know because i didn't make the shutter when I, once i make the shutter 100 percent, i made this camera yeah uh and i know it's going to be tough but i've been prepping for it so while i haven't started this project i've been prepping for it still researching i've been doing a ton of design research engineering research horological research um, have you have you been looking at the google patents for the shutters Tons and tons of Google Pens. I have. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. For, as far as aesthetics go, I'm leaving it very open. I'm gonna kind of work on the mechanism because I kind of, I kind of started this before, and then I got okay. This is a bit over my head. I don't know enough. Let's take a step back. And so I started. I've made my first attempt at a shutter like a year and a half ago, maybe, and it was miserable and terrible and garbage and useless. Was, was it was it a Kurt Gloss shutter like that? It was, yeah, it was based off of a Leica 2. And I'd never seen one in real life, but uh, I've seen lots of... There's a guy I'm sure we're all familiar with. uh, Somewhere in Europe, where was he? Um, Anyways, he made two amazing, beautiful cameras. One was a SLR and one was a rangefinder, and they're some of the best examples. And the guy's so modest when he talks about it. And he went through the whole process of building a like a two shutter and the camera he made was beautiful too it was unbelievable i was like geez this guy he knows what he's doing he probably made uh, something else before he got to the camera oh i'm sure yeah he definitely he had like a whole metal <laughs> shop he's definitely uh in that field and um so i was researching that and um trying to base my design off of that but it's really hard when you just don't have that shutter there and you can take your own measurements and everything mm-hmm. uh, Ended up hey, failing. <laughs> hey, Lucas, with this thing that you call a failure, but I, I suspect is important learning to uh, something you're going to amaze us with next. Um, did you print like a, or print, <laughs> I think of everything as printing. Uh, did you build a, um, just a, a shutter mechanism, or did you try and build a camera around a shutter mechanism? Just, just the mechanism. So I basically yeah. took two pieces of aluminum, and put like risers between them that are the distance that I needed and had like basically a hand wind. Another thing is, is I was trying to make my own springs, which. Is, okay. Damn. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So that's, that's a, requ- that is a requirement yes. for me. Right. I want to make my own springs. And it's I know. Is, I get yeah, all is of Is that my... what you had in your, is that what you had in your story yesterday? Um, in your Instagram story, you had, you had a spring, a big ba- brass spring. Oh no, those are that's not actually a spring. That's a bunch of brass circles, but they all oh, fit okay. together. So that's for the project oh, okay. I'm working on right now. That's just for fun. Um, okay. Yeah. I get so all no, of my 
camera springs from an, the leftovers of an 18-wheeler load of um, surplus like air spray paint gun equipment that I bought out and sold. Really? Uh, I have bags and bags of like uh, air, like H, uh, HVLP, high volume, low pressure spray gun springs that go into a bunch of my cameras. Huh. That's <laughs> yeah. like that's like so specific. That's funny. Yeah, What's I gonna happen when you run out? Around, <laughs> well, I, guess uh, I, I generally know. design things around um, commonly. Yeah. You know, like there's C twenty five springs and there's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, I wanna. So in my in my B thirty five, I made all the springs myself, but those are just small little like two twirl springs. Yeah, um, and those are pretty easy to make because you can just make those by hand. I just like I have like little arbors on the lathe, and I um, with a screw in it, I just tighten the screw down on the end, and with pliers, I hold the cable and just like rotate the lathe two or three times. And then snip the cable, and you got yourself is, a little, little spring. Is that something that you might consider making a short YouTube video on? Uh, if you guys want to see it, yeah, I, I would love to see it. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's a fun process. Making springs is a real pain in the ass because right <laughs> now I uh, I design around store bought springs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's it's a slow process, but um, occasionally, like little mustache springs and things like that, I'm I'm just always stealing out of air guns, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you're doing if you're doing like like little mustache springs, you can make those so quickly. I can make I can make one in ten seconds. Yeah. Uh, if you're doing like so the springs that I was trying to make that I was going crazy over is what I forget the two spools that the curtain rolls onto. What are those called? Is that drums? Is that it? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, okay. there's the you main drum. With the take-up drum uh, spring, right? Or yeah. The take-up but, roller spring that goes yeah, inside the roller, roller and outside yeah. the tension. Yeah, the base, yeah, the one that you have to tension to calibrate the shutter. So they have to be yeah. very precise. I built a very... mechanism around some uh, some springs that I found in the store, but they're necessarily larger than I would like as well. Yeah, yeah. They have to be very precise, and they have to cycle thousands and thousands of times. Yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah, a lot so... to ask. Yeah, I, I found a lot of information on spring making uh, through various sources, and I got like the right kind of. Um, I for, you, you actually get piano wire is the best source, and so I, it's like a it's like a G sharp piano wire or something that you to get the proper tension that I need and all this other kind of stuff. And um, but it's so small that getting like getting an arbor that's stiff enough at that size, um, because these things are. I have to make it fit in a, a tube less than a quarter of an inch, so the spring itself has to be very, very small. Um, anyways, that was that was my main failure point, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's mechanism. well, that's that's a really tall order. So, uh, so I might. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you're still the best camera maker if you go out and buy springs, but I, I might suggest um, they make long, very consistent springs. Uh, there's some C number that I found uh, that was too big, but they make them down to, you know, I, I bet McMaster or somebody would have like uh-huh. a perfect spring with no handmadedness to it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. Like you're prop like I might end up going that route, but I'm gonna try my darndest not to have to. <laughs> For what it's worth, I bet Oscar Barnack did not make his own springs, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think anyone makes. I think there's like one factory in China that makes all the springs for every camera, basically. But yeah, I do want to try, like, because it's like it comes from that watchmaking perspective, where it's like I really want to make 
everything. Sure. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and one, and while you're looking at uh, uh, cloth shutters, it's worth looking at the uh, speed graphic shutter. It's incredibly simple. Yeah. yeah. It's I a little, actually... it's a little elaborate to operate, but mm-hmm. it's amazingly durable and simple to build. Well, the do you guys know the Penundrum Foundation? No. It's, uh, it's the Jeffrey Berliner's uh, organization. It's like this thing here in the city, and they do like tin types and um, sure. classes. They do a lot of like classes, and they have a huge collection of cameras. And I'm friends with some of the guys that work there, and they they talk a lot about that shutter and how um, how great they are. Okay. And also, they said that if I could make a business out of repairing them, because there's one part that always fails in them, and it should be an easy fix. And um, they said that they have a stack of like 20 of these cameras that just need that one little repair made. What, what is like, the part? It's um, where it's sewn onto a metal hanger. The sewing, the stitching comes mm-hmm. on. And oh, I yeah. said, all I got to do is restitch it, basically. And they said, there's people out there that do it. Um yeah. No, but there's a there, it's expensive. It's very expensive to get it resewn. I've so, got one. I've got one that that it's basically someone stripped down a speed graphic until all that was left was the shutter, and I have that. <laughs> oh really? So that, yeah, it's, really, it's just it's a fun. speed graphic shutter. Yeah, it's just yeah. a speed graphic shutter. Yeah, and I have and another one that's in a camera, so you know that's that one. It's a but very gonna, robust design. It's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very simple too. It, you're right mm-hmm. though. It is. It's unique. It's not something that you can hand a modern. F- camera user and expect them to know how to use no you they just gotta use little... the chart for spring tensions and slit length yeah and yeah. the later the later models were actually a little simpler they, they did actually improve the interface towards the end good yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah that's what i'm up to uh expect uh sometime in 2020 the lander's I don't know. Maybe I'll call it the M, the Lander's M. (laughs) Okay. Um, Ethan, what are you up to? Well, I did what I was up to. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Nick, what are you up to? Sorry. (laughs) Well, so I've been mostly processing film. I shot a lot of film when I didn't, you know, I was super busy. Um, So now I'm trying to catch up on that. So I'm looking at going through images, trying to figure out what I learned from uh, shooting a bunch of film this winter, uh, through this summer. So that's it. Mostly processing and drawing pictures for things to build soon. Uh, All right. Sorry, uh, um, I was a little bit discombobulated there. No, that's fine. It's the problem with keeping notes. That's why I hate doing it. I do have. Actually, actually what happened was uh, I was on mute and my mouse died. So I had to go run and get another (laughs) mouse and plug it in. Uh, so so that I could come off mute. So uh, so that was where I where where I was. Um, uh, so my so thing, there oh there is there is one other thing that oh yeah, yeah I have a I have a quickie solution to the self developing camera. Um, you know, thinking back to when I originally thought of using a pinhole on a developing tank, um, I decided to try sort of the version two, which is one of those really tall developing tanks that you can get. It looks like a 10-inch sheet of paper into. Um, right. So it's my it's going to be my panoramic uh, pinhole self-developing camera. <laughs> All right. Cool. cool. Um, I, I've been working on that as well. Um, I wanted to do uh, really briefly, um, I did some experiments with uh, doing the 
direct positive paper. And uh, so I wanted to clarify a couple of things because I ordered like the wrong peroxide, not knowing exactly what what peroxide I was supposed to get. And uh, so I wanted to wanted to be very clear. Now, one of the things is if you go to Ethan's YouTube channel um, and uh, Cameradactyl, right? The YouTube yeah, channel. Yeah. And um, you look back there, there's a video on, he goes through the process, but I wanted, wanted to talk a little bit. Um, the citric acid you use is um, ball, brand. Uh, ball brand and it's the, the canning company ball. So go back in the kitchen area where they've got the, the big ball jars and um, get some of the, um, uh, it's a little green, it uh, looks like an oversized salt shaker size thing. Get one of those, and it says on the back how to mix it up for tomatoes. Um, yep. And that's that's the, the rate of that. The hydrogen peroxide you want to use is 40V crystal clear hydrogen peroxide. And you can get that at beauty supply stores. Um, uh, and I, I bought some that was cream. Uh, you know, so it was emulsified uh, peroxide. Yeah, that didn't work so well. <laughs> so, uh, but it was the only thing I had there for, you know, for my first test. So um, then uh, uh, the other thing is we're, we've been talking about pre-flashing paper and I will be back at the, uh, in our next episode and I will tell you about my pre-flashing paper test. because you haven't developed and, it yet? Um, yeah, well, I haven't even shot them. Yet. <laughs> I, I, actually, I, I pre-flashed the paper today and then today, uh, and what I was going to do was I have, uh, three holders with paper negatives in them and, um, I am doing different times on every one of the pre-flashing. So I've got all that written down and all that taken care of, but today was like equal cloud and, and sunshine so every every about two and a half minutes the light would change so uh, it, i wasn't going to ever get a, a consistent um yeah uh picture out of that so so i i i bailed on that um uh, i'm doing that today i'll do that a little bit later on so um and the other thing is i was able to finally print my um eight by ten canamorph um and uh but i have not yet uh, uh the the drills are coming in the mail for i needed some larger drills to drill the pinhole uh the pinholes for for an eight by ten uh version of that so what did you get like 0.4 millimeter point point four and i have a set that goes up to point three so yeah. uh yeah so i need point four i'm gonna uh do that what um the right way so uh, what do you guys think? You want to move on to books? Sure. Um, what, uh, Lucas, or, is there anything that we? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That we uh, have not asked you that you are interested in talking about. You think you that, that we have missed? Oh well, uh, there is one. Uh, I am currently applying for the record, the world record, for the world's smallest sheet film camera. Absolutely, you. Uh, I'm I'm smoking for you. Uh, yeah. And if 
And uh, for those of you who have not yet seen it, you can see it in our zine. Um, it is uh, our zines available on our website. Um, you can go to homemadecamera.com and download the zine on that. If um, uh, and it's also available on Lucas's uh, website. Right. Uh, so you're going through the official paperwork. Or, or is this with record? Guinness? Yeah, Guinness World Record. Yeah. So. Uh, it's a surprisingly long process, and um, it's it's taking forever. Uh, I should be hearing back anytime now, any, sometime very soon, about whether or not they accept the title. So basically, that's the first thing you submit is you don't submit your project, you just submit the title, and they approve the title. Um, and you think you get on TV for uh, Lucas Lander's world's smallest pinhole camera? <laughs> uh, well, so no, I probably won't get on TV, but. Um, I'm friends with a person from the the Daily Mini. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that Instagram account, um, but she has ties to it's a it's a really great Instagram account, which is like miniature things. She actually has ties to people from the New York Times, and she she's the one who actually pushed me to get the world record because she wants to do a article for that's great uh, New York Times Lens, which is the um, photo section. Mm-hmm. But she wants me to get the record first. <laughs> You're big time now. That's great. Yeah. So, so would you like solder this camera to a safety pin and clip it on your on your uh, lapel to take pictures, or like exactly, you know, how would you I have? I have <laughs> thought about um, putting making it like a pendant, like a necklace. Oh yeah. And uh, but no, I will say the camera is extremely difficult to use. It's not a good camera. <laughs> uh, the bellows are not light proof at all. <laughs> and um it they're just too thin and i got the thinnest like i got the thinnest material the thinnest material is too rigid but anything more rigid but it's still not light tight so if i got a material that'll be thick enough to be light tight it'll be yeah so it was a mess um but it's you, not good can you just, can you just sort of close your fist over it and keep the light out that way uh, what I did when I took the self-portrait of myself is I, I draped a dirty sock over it. Perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so a little behind the scenes of how I got that shot. Um, yeah, I just... Miniature dark cloth. Yeah, it was it was a miniature sock. Yep. Or not a miniature sock. Yeah, a miniature dark cloth. Yeah. So uh, that was a fun project. And I had a lot of fun. And I might remake one when... So if, if they accept the title... I'll probably make a, a Gen 2, just like specifically for the world record, which will be a little bit smaller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to beat yourself. Yeah, to beat that, myself. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how, <laughs> how small is the negative on this thing? Um, I have it right here, actually. So the image circle is smaller. Uh, the image circle is smaller than the negative, but the negative itself is... Let me see. Do I have a ruler here? Oh my god. Are you gonna make the next one just to fit the size of the image circle? Uh, probably. Yeah. Uh, so it's about the negative is about half an inch by a little less than half an inch, but the image circle is. Mm, I'm using I'm using my cutting mat, so it's not the best measuring. Uh, it's a little the the image circle is a little less than half an inch. Sure, well, maybe yeah. Yeah. If these are inch marks, I'm not actually sure if these are inch marks. 
<laughs> so yeah, you might you might want to go with like a like a, a panoramic, like a longer, narrower shape then. Yeah. Because yeah. I can yeah. if I'm doing and also I'll make the camera shorter. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, I could set sides down. Now the the design actually that I made actually allows this camera to fold up. Crazy. Uh, um, like a like a eight by ten field camera, but the bellows are just far too rigid, so it never actually was able to fold up. Ah. That was a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if there's there must be something out there. There must be something. I found I found online a, a people who make the world's thinnest synthetic leather. And I contacted them, but they never responded. So what, what I have found is at a certain point, synthetic, uh, like, because uh, I use a lot of leather uh, to make mm-hmm. bellows, um, at some point it becomes, like, coated so thinly you can see through it. Now, I don't know about yeah. this one company. Now, are um, you insisting on, like, an accordion constantly. bellows? Or can you make a, or can you make Ooh, a, like a travel a cup. Bag bellows, Perhaps. you know? So I went with the accordion bellows for aesthetics, um, mm-hmm. just because it looks like a camera when you see it. Uh, if like I could do, for instance, like a sliding box camera, uh, or, bag, get, or bag bellows. Um, yeah, the bag bellows. Or what I could do is just simply like make out of plastic, just rigid, thick bellows um, that will stop the light. Uh, because it's not like I actually have to focus this. So there are options out there. It's um, that's true. But Focusing it, it does seem <laughs> a little yeah. pointless. Yeah, very pointless. So um, there, I have I have options. I like I like the I like the traditional accordion bellows just for aesthetic reasons. Sure. Yeah, you might as well. well as long as it's as long as it doesn't actually need to go in and out. Um, yeah. yeah. Go for it. Just. Maybe maybe you need to maybe you need to uh, file them out of uh, or make them out of sheet metal or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> until then, I still have my dirty socks to use. As well. <laughs> so there's always that. Right. And to and also to give a little behind the scenes of that portrait, it was shot with strobes, and it took 28 pops to get that strobe pops wow. at full blast. Wow. Granted, I only have a 200 watt strobe. But uh, I was sitting there with um, the trigger in my hand, just click, 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 <laughs> click, just for like, yeah. Um, so it's not a, it's not a fun, it's very not fun to shoot. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, and then you're gonna have to work, start working on the world's smallest strobe too. Right. And yeah. tripod. And I was, uh, as a joke, I was talking. Do you guys know the company Tap and Die? They make like leather camera accessories. Mm-mm. Uh, that's yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So he's based in here in New York, and I was at a party with him the other day, and I'm trying to get him on board to make the world's smallest camera bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. That would be great. Yeah. So I'll, I'll have to circle back around on that one and see if he's down. He seemed interested. So if I get the title, I'll you know tap that on with it. Oh. <laughs> you know, sometimes that really works out. I knew a, a potter who was worked hard all through the 60s and 70s making normal sized pottery and then suddenly they somehow stumbled on the doll sized pottery market and they oh, were yeah. able to, they were able to get rid of all their giant kilns and all their heavy equipment and just have a little tiny electric kiln that they fired up a couple times a year yeah <laughs> everything you it's know funny. They, they, they were buying at one one hundredth of the you know materials and the prices weren't that different so yeah. the uh when, when i made this camera i did 
experience a little Fourier into the world of miniature, and it's this fascinating world. Because um, there are people who do everything but miniature. Mm-hmm. So there's like miniature woodworkers, there's uh, miniature potters, there's miniature painters, there's miniature embroidery, there's miniature planters, miniature gardeners. Uh, it's fascinating. It's, it blew my mind. Like ev- like the amount of stuff. There's there's guys out there who make miniature power tools, and it's mm-hmm. hilarious. <laughs> Are they functioning? Yeah, yeah. They don't have any actual like force behind them, but yeah, they make like little power drills. That... Yeah, if you need to cut up some Swiss cheese or something. Yeah, yeah I think I'm more of a maximalist. <laughs> you like them big, yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah, I. I went into the miniature for a day, and I was like, yeah, this is nice, but yeah, I want to get back to normal size. <laughs> yeah, I think a little bit too, a little bit bigger than normal is good, too. Just have a little more elbow room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's talk about books. Um, did anybody come up with uh, any books that they wanted to talk about? I got a book. Okay, so go ahead. Tell us about it. <laughs> okay. Um... It's called The Inventor and the Tycoon, A Gilded Age of Murder and the Birth of Moving Pictures by Edward Ball. And it's a book about Edward Muybridge, if that's how you say his name, and Leland Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, one was, uh, you know, arguably the inventor of motion pictures, and the other was uh, the t- railroad tycoon who started Stanford University, and they both had very uh, colorful lives and murder and intrigue. It might not be the all-time best of books but it's a great book (laughs) i I enjoy it very much it's not a very technical uh look at camera building uh but it is really interesting look at the the sort of time uh the the time and and the people who were involved with inventing motion pictures and it it does mention a bunch of their contraptions and inventions and uh, the way they peddled them around Europe and the United States um, as, as sort of like uh, novelty machine peddlers, I, I thought was very interesting. Uh, and I would like to put it in everybody's head. Maybe we can do an episode about that one day. Okie dokie. Uh, Nick, do you have a book? Uh, do you have any nope. books to talk about? Nothing. No new books. Okay. Yet. How about shout outs? Anybody have a shout out that they would uh, like to, to to note someone? Uh, I would like to thank Bantam Tools. Uh, they they gave me that CNC machine. I've been having a lot of fun with it. And it's a an amazing company. They're up in uh, Peekskill, New York, and they're actually coming down uh, the beginning of next month to talk to me and do a little little like i i'm not sure if it's a video or a podcast or it might be both um and their their machine's great i've been using it a ton having a blast what's a, uh, I, I was a little bit curious i i'm guessing it is a very fine small mm-hmm. um uh mill what's its maximum uh capacity i mean like what's its maximum dimension of an item it can work on in one shot it can do five by four inch footprint. I'm not okay. sure, or slightly. It can do slightly above that. I'm not sure how tall it can go. So the bit sits maybe inch and a half, two inches above the bed. So you could probably make like a two inch block in there, but then the bed can come off, and so you can make something a lot bigger. Um, I'm really not uh-huh. sure uh, the maximum capacity, but it is very small. Like okay. it's, 
it's mostly for I would say cutting things out of flat pieces of metal is what I use it for most. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. Ethan, do you have any uh, shout-outs? Uh, I forgot this week. Sorry. Okay. I I owe a lot of people a lot of shout-outs. Okay. So, well, actually, I'm going to throw one out. There, there's a, a picture up on our Flickr group um, of a one of our listeners, Francois Lavardure from I think Montreal, has uh, adapted. A Yashica lens to a Fed camera, and they, you know, changed the mount and made it work. And I think it's kind of inspiring. Those those small 35 millimeter parts are hard to work with, but it's fun when you you can take some yeah. bro- different broken cameras and bring them back to life. I'm, I'm gonna really have to check that out. Yeah. 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 I spent the last day and a half disassembling and starting to reassemble a Zorky, and uh, just considering doing something like turning the shutter around or maybe rotating part of it such that I can use it close up to the lens to shoot panoramas through the Jupiter eight. Um, but yeah, I mean like a Zorky is 35 bucks. <laughs> I might be able to grab one and reconfigure it, uh, in, in, in some sort of panoramic way. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, my shout out this week is to uh, Eric of um, you guys know him on Instagram as Conspiracy of Cartographers. And he has started a new podcast. I haven't uh, been able to find it yet, but he's started a new co- podcast. So it's worth um, uh, checking out. We've heard him a bunch. If you are a listener to the Sunny 16 podcast, he's on there uh, fairly regularly. Uh, his new podcast is called All Through a Lens, All Through a Lens. So um, it, uh, I don't think it's it's run its way through Apple Podcasts yet, but it should be soon. Probably by the time we're on our next episode, uh, you'll be able to get uh, the first episode of All Through a Lens. So that is my shout out uh, for for this episode. Yeah. Um, uh, Nick, where can people find your work? Uh, on Flickr, Nick Lyle, and Avi Nick is the Instagram handle. And I guess I'd also encourage people to check out our Flickr group, uh, Homemade Camera Podcast Flickr group. Okay. And uh, Ethan, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me at cameradactyl.com or cameradactyl on Instagram. Um uh, and also on our Facebook group. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Lucas, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, well, if you live in Brooklyn, just come say hi. Uh, okay. You're, but, you're Lucas that everybody knows in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. 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 You guys know where to find me. And um, But uh, if you're on the internet, uh, lucaslanders.com, and that's L-U-C-U-S, not L-U-C-A-S, L-U-C-U-S, Landers.com and then cropped underscore camera on Instagram. All right. And you can get a hold of my stuff. Uh, I am Graham Homemade Camera on Instagram. Uh, you can get me as Freezer of Photons on Flickr. And uh, you can email me, uh, Graham at homemadecamera.com. You can email Ethan, Ethan at homemadecamera.com. And you can email Nick, nick at homemadecamera.com. So if you guys want to email us 
Uh, or you can actually email us at podcast at homemadecamera.com. And that will oh. just kind of generally go to us. Yes, Ethan. One, didn't know that I had a homemadecamera.com podcast or uh, email address. I got to ask you about the password to that. Oh, uh, I, I thought <laughs> I sent you all that stuff. But yeah. We'll, uh, or maybe we just had a forwarding. Anyway. Um, okay, so everybody you, knows uh, that's what's happened to well, your I, emails. Not official. <laughs> <to Ethan. laughs> he has ignored them completely. So, okay. Uh, Anyway, sorry, what were you saying there? I was walking all over you. People should send in not their official submissions yet. We haven't put up the um, the submission form for the uh, the self-developing camera thing. But um, send in a pic or two with an email, and we will read them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. That, that That's a good idea. Also, we have a zine, and we are at the uh, end of the pre- um, Pre-ordering? When? When? Uh, when's the official close on pre-ordering? Uh, Ethan. Second, I'll look it up. You keep talking. <laughs> Is it October fourth? Is it October fourth? Oh, he's gonna actually look it up. You can yeah. get them. Go to cameradactyl.com. Uh, and no, don't go to cameradactyl. Go to the homemade camera podcast.com and navigate uh, to the. Oh, hold on. Okay. Yeah, we can do it that way. Go to uh, homemadecamera.com. Uh, look up the zine. Um, it'll be it's there on the um, on the navigation, and um, that'll take you to the um, uh, the homemade camera uh, zine that you can purchase on uh, uh, on Ethan's cameradactyl.com. Right. The order period will end on September twenty second. September 22nd, which is actually the day after this this runs, oh. and um, then um, we will be shipping in early October as soon as we get them back, and uh, um, uh, we're really excited about those. And um, uh, and and Lucas, you're in it, right? I I hope so. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I believe you have three cameras on there. I think, um, uh, uh, was it, the, okay, so the the view camera, the small view camera, one of the metal cameras, and then the instant press camera. Yes. Uh, I yes. think are in there. <coughs> Excuse I'm me. I'm very excited. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, and um, I think it's time to thank Robbie. What do you guys think? Should we thank yeah. Robbie? Thanks, Thanks Robbie. Robbie, for making the music that we use throughout the oh, show. Oh, I was like, who's Robbie? <laughs> <laughs> He's playing, we have, right? We have a mute member of this. Okay. Well, but he makes great music, so it's not quite mute. Uh, but yes, okay. So thank you. Thanks, Robbie, for the soundtracks you for the music just throughout the show. Thank you, Robbie.
and everyone I make will be the, the best camera. At, at a certain point, everyone I make will be the best camera in the world, according to me. <laughs> so uh, that that's the that that really is the goal.